You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I dropped an amazing episode with Dom Grimao of The Last Felony, Ion Dissonance, and Cryptopsy. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Hello, hello, hello. You know, I started this podcast because I love podcasts, but I also think it is always going to be a feature of my life and personality or maybe my calling outside of music to somehow manifest and explore this constant curiosity and and share it with others. I'm always chasing after that paradigm shifting thoughts, the facts, the tidbits, the experiences of other people, the bar conversations, the backstage conversations, just hoping for those aha moments, you know, like really kind of changes the way that you think about the world. I think that that is really just a a, a fantastic journey to be on and and a great way to to view the world. Um, So this is the first episode of a little offshoot to the regular format of the podcast. It's called The Friday Files. It's going to be me talking about whatever I want with whomever I want. Uh, Get at me, Tom at FutureFriday.net with any notes or ideas or bullshit, and I will reply. Uh, We have some compilation episodes coming up where they're just going to be topic-based. We have some timed ones that are going to be checking in uh, every so often and compiling them at the end, like some of the Serialized podcasts that I really like. I'm, I'm super stoked. So you just get at me, uh, TomAtFutureFriday.net, and I'll get back to you. If you haven't yet, and you are in the tri-state mid-Atlantic region, of which you have a high statistical probability of being if you listen to this podcast and live in the United States, rush on over to Instagram and check out Little Fern Workshop. Little Fern Workshop is a new company started by our very own Eric Keen and his wonderful wife, Georgia. Uh, they have vintage, restored, and handcrafted items and furniture out of South Philly. Uh, they find some really cool shit all over the area. They fix it up, restore it, and sell it. They have some really cool shit up there. Uh, so you can you can search hashtag Ferns in Stock to see what they've got and give them a follow. Uh, again, that's Little Fern Workshop on Instagram. You can search hashtag Ferns in Stock. I have one more favor to ask of you guys. It would be great if you could rate and subscribe to the podcast. Better yet, it would be fantastic if you told somebody about it that you think would enjoy it. Um, I do not like hammering social media. I find it tedious. Uh, it's unattractive. It's one of the reasons why sometimes the episodes don't come out in a timely fashion because I just stare at the list of posts to make and think, I hate this, <laughs> even though it's not that labor-intensive. Um, honestly, I'd really like to pop in uh, to everybody once in a while via email with some updates of the episodes that have come out and some things that are going on in the world of uh, uh, myself, Future Friday, the band, all that shit. Um, I find that to be much more attractive of an endeavor. Turns out the email sign-up list on futurefriday.net has been broken, but it should be fixed by the time this comes out. <laughs> uh, hopefully. But now, uh, without further ado, one of the greatest people on Earth and my fellow cosmic comrade, Joe Godino. Go. Uh, I'm just going to start it right now. Ready? Joey, thank you so much for joining me for the first ever uh, iteration of Friday Files. I'm so excited to have this goofy. Well, it doesn't even have to be goofy, but like yeah, a new this outlet is awesome. to just this do fun stuff. This has been really cool. I was like, I spent like a few hours like researching, like as if I was writing like a book report. Like I forgot what that feels like. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Dude, it's so fun. I even had myself like getting. Remember, you have to like state your mission or purpose in the first paragraph, and then roll it over. And, yeah, totally. Uh, yeah, it was fun to revisit that. Uh, yeah. Also, funny thing of note: this morning when we were talking in the in the band group text message chat about all of our missing microphones. Oh, guess what, bad uh, guess boy! What right here, I had two. It's one of the missing microphones. <laughs> I searched my whole house and yeah, Greg like, was, was just like, right "Where are all our microphones?" It's like I don't have any of those. Why would I have those? And then there's two in the office. I was like, "Oh shit! Never mind." <laughs> Yeah, I had uh, a couple of mine are missing. I don't know where they. Are. I'm gonna blame Dave March because uh, it's easy because yeah. he's d- he's in England. Yeah, and, and he can't defend gone himself. Now. <laughs> England's and they're gone that much further away these days. <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah, so it, it really is. We can't go there. All right, yeah. So the format basically we're kind of jacking the uh, uh, what I've seen a lot of podcasts do, like My Favorite Murder and stuff like that. I guess we're just gonna retell and comment on some uh, stories that we find interesting. And for you and I, it happens to breach yeah. into the UFO territory. So, for the first ever uh, Friday file ever in history, I'm what, uh, going what story to tell, tell the story of the aerial school phenomenon. It was um, an event that took place in Zimbabwe at a uh, like primary school in 1994, where a bunch of little kids basically they saw um, some crafts land with beings 
actual beings that came out of them and everything. It's pretty pretty wild story. And um, I think it's a story that's pretty commonly known throughout people that like research this type of stuff, like UFOs and just whatever phenomenon. But um, I was surprised to sure. find with that being said that there wasn't there's not like a ton of information about it like certain people do stories on it and i was able to find some interviews and stuff but as a whole um for as popular as it seems within this world um there wasn't like a ton of stuff so it was actually cool because i was able to like dig a little bit and really and when i found something like an interview or a more recent thing it was like that much more gratifying because it was like oh the, you know, I just didn't, it, it was just, I don't know. It was just hard, that much harder to find really. So, so yeah. Hell yeah. When you said that you were going to do this one, I purposefully didn't, uh, I was debating whether or not I was going to like yeah. do a refresher and reread about it or maybe watch a couple YouTube videos. And I decided not to, I think it'd be a lot more. Yeah. Fun so the first time I heard about it and I'll dive into it real, real quick. Um, but the first time I heard about it was in a book by Richard Dolan that you suggested I read, um, aliens for the, or UFOs for the 21st century mind. It's an awesome book because it's really down to earth. You don't have to yeah. be head in the clouds researcher of this stuff to like really grasp it. It's really like down to earth. Totally, and it's really a void of a lot of the things that you find when people research these uh, phenomena and in this this like UFO research culture where there's so much anecdotal evidence, but also just so much like um, wading through the ideas mm -hmm. of misinformation or disinformation and just like all the politics that people have yeah. within their own UFO bullshit. Uh, the dude's just like a serious historian. It's a, it's a great... Yeah, and I think I think uh, a lot of the stuff, stuff I read now these days too is, is more grounded in that where it just is grounded in general. Um, it's just like it, it, it's more of a, yeah, more down-to-earth approach um, because it's becoming more I don't know. I, I just feel like people, it's becoming more of a palatable subject these days um, because of like different things in the 100%. news and big stories and stuff. But anyway, that's where I found out about this yeah. story first um, a couple months ago. And then, yeah, I just started diving in. So basically, this was, um, like I said, it happened on uh, Friday, September 16th in 1994. Um, about 60 school children between the ages of like six and 12, they saw a large silver disc with several smaller discs surrounding it um, right outside of their like playground. Um, and they saw it kind of descending down into like a kind of a tree, treed hill area um, right outside of their fence of their schoolyard. So more kids started running up and seeing it and, and yelling and everything and making a big deal of it. Um, they explained it as a uh, uh, like a cigarette-shaped thing with blinking lights, with all different blinking lights, colors surrounding it, like kind of going in and out, all different colors. And, um, you know, one girl said that she heard, she didn't hear any, like, buzzing or whizzing or any kind of, like, craft noises that you would assume more, but, but she said she actually heard, which is more creepy, uh, a flute-playing noise. <laughs> that and she said it scared Whoa. her uh, which i guess would probably scare me too because it's not something you'd think you were gonna hear out of something like that. it's like if a dog started like mooing you'd be like <laughs> what the hell um Jesus. so anyway so yeah that was um yeah. so one of the creatures apparently like came out of this craft and kind of a couple of the kids said that it kind of floated toward them or hopped it wasn't really like walking it was more like kind of floating and uh, another being apparently was standing on top of this craft after it landed, kind of like watching everything go on. Um, and the one that was walking toward them on the ground or floating toward them, um, apparently, once they caught, uh, once it caught wind of, the, of the, all the kids there, at first it seemed like it didn't really notice them, and then it did. Uh, turned to them, kind of like made eye contact with some of them, stared for a, a few moments, and then just went back into the craft, and then kind of took off um a few of the kids said they you know it wore they wore like tight black suits with big eyes kind of like we see like a typical like alien like real long elongated eyes you know um with uh no nose just like little holes for their nose um some of them said they had long black hair um so yeah they were kind of walking around a little observing quickly and then just like took off so all the kids ran inside and they were all freaked out. Um, 
and they told the teachers and the teachers kind of wrote it off at first you know they were just like you know they're kids you know like they're probably it could have seen an animal whatever yeah. you know whatever they wrote it off totally yeah yeah so um so this happened on a friday uh so after that you know it was the weekend all the kids went home and following this i guess like on on monday um all of the parents of these children started calling in the school just being like you know our kids are completely freaked out they're all telling kind of the same story um like what did they see what was going on like did you see it the teachers like we didn't see anything they all ran in together they were all scared um so this caused the school to try to you know start bringing in some people from the outside to talk to the kids interview them and try to get to the bottom of it a little bit so the first person they brought in um was this woman named cynthia hind who was a local ufo researcher in the area and also um on behalf of mufon the mutual ufo network was the researcher for the whole continent of africa so she was like really um really experienced into all these things Uh so they 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 called her in and they wanted her to talk to the kids and um there are videos of her like talking you can look them up to the kids and in the in the schoolyard and they're all kind of like yelling different things that they saw drawing drawing pictures and all these things um so she uh you know so she does her research and is basically just like yeah this is you know pretty crazy and then so she there's another guy um his name was john mack and he was a professor of psychiatry at harvard and also happened to be a ufo researcher yeah yeah i definitely believe like i've read him yeah he wrote uh, this book in the early 90s called abducted which is like a huge book yeah yes and so totally funny enough this is where things start to get like kind of weird he was already in africa at the time researching different things he was just like interviewing people of different sightings all around the continent you know reading uh different things he was going to chase down some of these people to talk to some people about different things so he catches wind i'm assuming this part is not really known, but through her or just through the grapevine of this story. And so he was about to leave Africa and then was like, nope, I'm going to go and check this out too. So he just happened to be there and then goes to the school to interview these kids. Um, so Whoa. he starts interviewing all the kids um, separately and has them like draw what they've seen. Um, and he came to the conclusion that like they weren't lying. All, a lot of their things that they were saying were very consistent with each other um different uh things about their appearance the way it took off the way it came down all kinds of things um which is also something you can see like on youtube and stuff it's really cool you can watch all the interviews that he does with the kids and um it's funny because the kids they all seem very scared you know and and when kids like oh yeah you know when you when you see something especially as a child like I think kids can kind of write it off quickly enough. It was just like whatever. And then they go back to their day, but this is something that bothered them for like days and weeks after. Um, and in these interviews, you can kind of tell they're, they're definitely still shaken up. Yeah. And you forget that, or I always forget that it, it was 1994. Yeah. So it's yeah. not that yeah, long that's, ago. It's kind of cool too, to, to watch some of the videos because yeah, it really isn't that long ago. So it's like, but now a lot of these kids are probably our age, um, you know, and, and, uh, but I'll get to that part that there's, there's more later, but, uh, but anyway, so, um, yeah, yeah, so none yeah. of the kids said, this is another big key of this, um, to Cynthia Hind and to John Mack that they had thoughts pop into their head. And apparently they, the researchers seemed to think that this was through like telepathic ways but the kids didn't really know of this so they just said they started thinking of things of and they all consistently said that um it was based on like warnings to take care of the planet and that these beings were telepathically telling them to to take care of the environment and which is a common theme in a lot of stories like this of abductions and things where they get messages people that have gone through these experiences get messages to um take care of the planet like we're we're killing the planet take care of it you know and and things like that so um one of the children said that she was told that the world telepathically that the world was going to end 
and she never thought of that idea before it was just something that came into her head she was like seven years old she never thought about like the planet dying you know so she had no real uh knowledge of this before but then all of a sudden she was told this um one of them said quote uh all the trees will go down and there will be no air and people will be dying um Another one, a fifth grader, his name was Francis, he told John Mack um, that he was warned about something that's going to happen and that pollution mustn't be. Um, I think it's worthy to note, too, that all the kids have, like, accents because they're in South Africa. So it's kind of yeah, really yeah. adorable, too, when you hear, like, their, their, like, the, their warnings of their, <laughs> these things and the way they, they speak is, is, I don't know, endearing, I guess. But um, And then another one, an 11-year-old... Uh, she said that, quote, I think they want people to know that we're actually making harm on this world and we mustn't get too technologed, which is a word she <laughs> probably Whoa. came up with on her own. Um, but so, so Jean Beck yeah. does all these, these, uh, these interviews and concluded with like certainty that the children weren't making it up. Um, he was very used to, he was a psychiatrist, so, um, very used to telling when people are fabricating or just, you know, recalling something, uh, you know, that, that wasn't really based in truth or wasn't based in hard evidence or anything. But, um, he stayed for a while and interviewed all these, these kids and decided that it was, uh, you know, that he, they, they were being truthful and they said what they saw or saw what they said. Yeah, that they believe mm -hmm. yeah. what they said at the very and least. And in fact, that was you one know, of the things he told core. a lot of the parents were starting to kind of come around a little bit because they had this Harvard psychiatrist who just happened to be in Africa, by the way. <laughs> like, it just happened to be there. Who, a UFO investigator who was like a top psychiatrist, too, at the time, just happened to be in Africa to then reroute his plans to go talk to all these children. Um, to, you know, two yeah. birds at one stone. I into this subject and I can talk to them and figure it out, which is pretty crazy in its own way. Um, yeah. So yeah, he kind of convinced the parents um, to, to even if they didn't believe the children that they shouldn't accuse them of lying because they were obviously very shaken up about this and he didn't want them to like be discredited um, to at least be open-minded and hear what they had to say. So um, with this too came like the teachers began to really believe the kids and there's interviews too with the teachers that you can find um where the teachers back then are just like at first we did not believe this at all but now like we believe it just straight up like they just say hey we we believe this you know after seeing all the consistency in the stories and everything um so that's kind of the yeah, base dude. of the whole thing um and this is where it gets crazy because a lot of i was reading through this and before i got to this part i was like this is really interesting but at the end of it, it, it really is just a, a bunch of kids saying they saw something. And, you know, kids can be discredited very easily, um, unfortunately, I guess. So, you know, basically, uh, Cynthia Hind, who we were talking about before, she's, she um, mm -hmm. comes out and states that, so this happened on September 16th. So September 14th and 15th, two days prior, she had also received dozens of reports of sightings throughout the area seen as far away as Zambia, which is like 650 miles north of Zimbabwe, and Botswana, which is 360 miles southwest of, of Zimbabwe, of capsule-like fireball in the sky that was flanked by other smaller capsules. So pretty much exactly what the kids saw, a bigger craft with like smaller craft surrounding it. Um, and also a, a trucker in the area reported on beings that he couldn't figure out what they were on the side of the road um like the night before so um Damn. and then she receives this report about the school so she's just like going in already like well i mean it's just another report of these things like of course you know it, it all makes sense yeah she's gotta be like well of course it all just like follow this line right exactly here. This yeah is the logical line um here. so so all that alone it, it, you know it's 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 pretty pretty crazy that you know, you have this story, but the, the, the deeper I dug, then finding out about these other um, these other events that were happening right before it by by Hind, um, which is really interesting. Um, so there are some follow up interviews that were conducted like in 2014 of some of the 
the kids who are now like, I don't know, in their thirties or whatever. Um, and it's funny because they're all very consistent still. And they're not like, Oh, I don't really remember it. They're, they're like adamant. And it's, it's funny to see the interviews of them as little kids and then them as adults, just basically saying the same things and really still backing up their stories, you know? And, and, uh, it's really interesting and you can find some of those interviews too, but it was, it was pretty tough to find, uh, follow-ups. There's only a few. Um, and you know, a lot of it I think has to do with just another common theory of this stuff is that people don't really want to come out with their stories a lot of the times and even official people in the military or government, um, because it's like they get ridiculed, you know, they don't want to be like that person that's, uh, that has to back these things up. Dude, 100%, even before when you brought up the trucker who saw the, you know, quote-unquote strange beings on the side of the road, my first thought was, I'm so glad that I never saw strange beings on the side of the road and then had to, A, make a report of it or talk to other people about it, or B, spend the rest of your life framing every experience that you have by the fact that, oh, okay, well, this standing in line at this store to get this thing sucks, but remember when I saw those fucking <laughs> yeah, like, aliens on the you know, side uh, of the road? It's, it, nobody's going, well, not nobody's going to but it is a hard thing for people to believe. Um, and one of the things that stood out was um, one of the children, she, in this interview I found, uh, goes by the name Sarah. It's a fake name. Um, but she was saying that, you know, in quotes, and this kind of struck me at the end, um, she said, try telling people that you live in permanent fear of these things returning one day. You know, she just still thinks about this. And then she oh. said, try telling them that you can actually sense when they're back in our atmosphere. <laughs> That's what she says. And, oh, and what she the fuck? doesn't say her name. She doesn't say like who she was, but it was, um, but she, yeah, she doesn't want to uh, relive this, you know, and, and, um, and it's crazy. Yeah. And because yeah, so, you know, you think of it on the outside as like, Oh, a funny thing that happened. And you, but like, what if you actually, saw that you know in the way they explained i mean that would probably be more terrifying than anything i would i would assume um and yeah i mean that kind of wraps it up i mean there's there's a lot of um different angles to this and you can get deeper into the researchers like john mack and his research uh, from harvard and cynthia hind Mm -hmm. uh both of whom who have passed away now um cynthia hind passed away in 2000 and uh john mack passed away in 2004 he was crazily uh struck by a a car in england like walking down the street um true i forgot about that yeah yeah there's some mystery surrounding that he dedicated his whole life to this topic and he was important to mention too like shunned by harvard um and uh like for for being on this subject he only had a few people around him at at the university that were uh on his side with this a lot of people wanted to discredit him and a lot of people said he was losing his mind getting into this stuff and i mean you watch these interviews that he does especially with these these children and he clearly is not a person whose mind is lost i mean he's a very like you know he's a very uh well-spoken down-to-earth uh guy and and the way he interacts with the children too i I definitely suggest people look up the the interviews because it's just really cool it's like how would you talk to a a children who has seen this, you know, how would you, I w I don't know that I'd be able yeah. to, um, ask the right questions. And I mean, obviously he's a professional at this, so he knew, um, but it's all very crazy. Cause you have two aspects. You have two, like the children's accounts, which are children's accounts and they can be kind of spooky when you hear them talk about these things. Um, but then you have these researchers yeah. accounts who, have, who were talking about, um, instances that, uh, that back this up that happened days prior to this even happening yeah yeah that's that's huge i mean that's such a big deal uh that corroboration you know oh yeah it's funny my i think i don't know if i have the nomenclature right or or not even the nomenclature the the right lingo down for the ufo researcher community kind of shit but events like this i believe they call them like experiencer events like where you uh have some kind of psychic connection or experience like the close encounters of the third or fourth kind i forget which one it is where you actually see or talk to uh you know, beings or consciousnesses or, or whatever the fuck it is. And at first I was real into it 
when I was first like very young, early teenager researching this kind of stuff and learning about it and just being generally interested in it. And then I pushed it away really hard because I was like, no, you can't rely on anything anecdotal. It has to be um, there has to be radar corroboration or government documents or like what, what, video footage, like any of those things. And now that uh, I've gotten older, it's making a full circle back again. I'm starting to realize that. Yeah, these uh, you know these lived experiences of these people do hold some interesting uh, facets, especially when they're corroborated separately. When they, you know, like uh, recently the episode of the Berkshire UFO case that came out um, on the oh, new yeah. Unsolved Mysteries on Netflix, where the people had experienced the same things but didn't tell each other till decades later, and then realized that they had had the same thing. Like that kind of stuff does uh, not necessarily have to be thrown away for it. But yeah, that was that, that's such a good story. I really need to watch yeah, those YouTube yeah. videos of the kids. Um, and apparently there is um, like a documentary that has been being made for the last couple of years um, that I also found in, in digging around. Um, I think it's in some sort of uh, halted state right now. I don't really know like what, what's going on with it. But um, yeah, apparently there will be, sure. there has been anyway, a, a documentary. And I did get some of the information from... Um, interviews of of some of the more recent interviews of the children um from youtube areas that were i think connected to this possible documentary so you know credit to them too nice i'm definitely going to put links to some of that shit uh in the show notes so if you go to the website it'll just i'll put like whatever links to youtube or just some like an instruction of how to google or some shit like that but hell yeah all right so yes i'm gonna tell my story it is about Japan Airlines JAL-1628, which was uh, an incident that happened in 1986. I picked this one for a couple reasons. One is one of the earliest ones I can remember learning about, maybe seeing it on like, the Discovery Channel or some shit like that. But 1986, mm-hmm. the year. year we were both born. You know, you got to rock that. It's also uh, extremely well documented. Uh, it involved a shit ton of people. It's got testimony by all uh, three crew members, uh, civilian air traffic control, military radar, civilian radar, the weather radar on the plane, and then all this kind of wild-ass shit that happened with the FAA afterwards. Uh, it is alleged to be one of, if not the longest, uh, civilian radar tracking of a UFO incident uh, because they had this like weather radar node in the front of the front of the plane in the nose and they used it to track this thing for first one of time um also there's this guy john callahan who was a whistleblower from the ffa or sorry the uh, faa the federal aviation administration i think he was third in line to be to, like to the head of the faa he was the head of the um accidents in investigations division but he's got this super thick boston new england kind of accent and he's like really funny and he's just one of those like i don't know no nonsense people from like a like a like a detective in a movie that uncovers the yeah, corrupt like, cops. Like a Mark just, Wahlberg. I love it so much. Yeah. He's very much like a Mark Wahlberg. It, he's fucking funny. So I couldn't figure out whether or not I can actually play any of his uh, <laughs> interview shit on here because I don't know if it'll get pulled or if it'll be copyright infringement or whatever. But if I figure it out by by this end of this week, then I'm, I'm going to stick some. I'll probably stick it in like right here. Uh, and also, one of the other reasons I chose this was because... Joe, remember how cool yeah, it was when you went to Japan? Yeah, it seems like a uh, uh, different a different life at this point yeah that was the yeah, probably the coolest place I, I feel like I've, I've been for sure yeah it was amazing and i gotta say that when we were flying so we flew uh similar airspace to where this incident happened over alaska and at one point i went to the back of the plane and looked out the window and you could just as far as the eye can see it was just snow-capped um like rigid uh rough angled mountains and it was the most surreal otherworldly thing i've ever seen this far in life yeah. looking out the window I was like holy shit and I just couldn't stop thinking about this incident mm-hmm. and what that must have been like to be these guys uh, so here we go we have JAL 1628 the JAL the jail, our jail pals um, I can never remember the flight number for some reason so now it's 28 days later and when you're driving so that's how I remember it 1628 uh, so the whole thing takes place just under an hour, about 50 minutes, we got a Japan Airlines 747. It's a cargo plane, no passengers, just three crew members, flying from Paris to Reykjavik, the millennial vacation destination of the world, and then up and over uh, near the North Pole, Arctic, to Fairbanks, Alaska, and then again on to Tokyo. So one hilarious kind of note to me is that the... All the cargo was just full of uh, wine from France, a Beaujolais wine. 
Uh, so that's pretty kind of funny. It gets brought up a lot when people are retelling the story because they make jokes about them like dipping yeah, in the yeah. stash of, of the wine in the back of the plane, which I, I don't know. I've been pretty fucked up before, yeah. including on Beaujolais. And I don't think I would uh, see an aircraft carrier size structure and, and, or be and in charge of that while wanting it's being tracked to on radar. Fly a <laughs> huge cargo plane. <laughs> You'd be like, I'm good. Yeah. Good on that. <laughs> exactly. Maybe the aliens were just like, damn. They were debating whether or not they were going to jack all the the Beaujolais from the from the plane. Um, so they at this point when this all goes down, they already landed in Iceland and they're on their way to Anchorage. Um, they get a communication from uh, Anchorage Air Traffic Control asking them to turn away from this one fort that's up there. So they turn away from the fort and they change their direction a little bit. Um, and then the uh, the captain, his name is Captain Kenju Tarauchi. I uh, believe I'm saying that right. It was pronounced a couple different ways, but that's uh, what they pronounced on the, the documentaries. Uh, it's a little bit after 5 p.m. Alaska time. Uh, he's a former fighter pilot with over 10,000 hours in the sky. Uh, gets the, 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 he sees two objects to the left, about 2,000 feet below him, uh, like 10 o'clock. They appear in front of his... Uh, so, so they're gone. He sees him. He's like, what the fuck? This must be two military planes. We're near Fort. Whatever. Uh, so then the first officer radios the Anchorage Air Traffic Control Center to ask if they have any vehicles or they have any planes traffic near them because at that point the two objects appeared in front of the plane about 500 to 1,000 feet away, slightly above them. Uh, he said, the captain said in a, in a, later on in an FAA report that they were about the size of Boeing 707s, so I guess a little bit smaller than his plane, and that the lights actually emitted heat, uh, cause he felt it on his face in the cabin. So like whatever the lights on those, the craft that were in front of them, he like felt it. I believe he used the word afterburner to describe them when he was do- given the report, but, uh, yeah, he's just kind of, you know, blasted heat and they're like oh shit so they which isn't like a common thing in a lot of reports to like feel something you know it's it's very uh yeah exactly yeah Yeah, you don't really see that i guess it kind of makes sense because it i mean you're above alaska it's freezing cold it was nighttime uh or it was like dark uh ish getting there dark was 5 p.m alaska alaska time so like that heat you know might be more if the thing was like 500 feet away it makes sense you know it's crazy but you definitely definitely don't uh, see that it's not like you know Saturn doesn't blast you with heat when you mistake yeah. it for with ice crystals. Yeah. I mean, even the sun, if you're in a plane, like you're not like you know, you're not really like getting like yeah. you might feel warmer <laughs> if the sun's on you, but you're not getting blasted with like an oven. You know? <laughs> true, true. So uh, yeah, 15 minutes after the first sighting, they're, the now they moved in front of the plane. The first officer radios air traffic control and asks if they have any aircraft or military aircraft in the area. Alaska Air Traffic Control Anchorage ATC is like, uh, hey, can you repeat that? What? <laughs> and JAL asks again. ATC says, no, we don't have anything. And JAL says, well, we see two planes in front of us. So then they go back and forth for a little bit. And uh, Anchorage Air Traffic Control tries to get them to see what kind of planes they are. They asked if, like, can you tell? Can you see anything on the tails? And they asked about the lights uh, that they were emitting. So Captain Tracci says they are white and yellow, I think. Which, um, a side note, I think it's interesting because he couldn't really tell what the color was. And I don't want to read too far into it. But, you know, if you're experiencing something that you don't quite understand or have no frame of reference for, you're going to pull from your worldview. So you're just going to, like, guess maybe it's yellow. Maybe it's not a regular... Uh, type of bulbed electric light emission situation that we are used to yeah, seeing, yeah. you know, in in our light spectrum, whatever. But uh, so now it's it's five twenty three. Only a few minutes have gone by since the beginning of this thing, so they saw it first at like five ten. Uh, so then, poof, the objects shoot below the horizon, shoot out of sight. Um, so they keep going. He, then he sees a little bit of light where they were first appeared to the left. And air traffic control says they don't have anything on the radar. Um, but then JAL points their onboard digital weather radar system sets it so that it could be within like 20 or 25 miles. That's like how far out it's going to check. And then seven or eight miles away, they get it. Uh, they hit it on the radar. It's a big green blip. They have a, the, you know, the tapes for it. They have all the instrumentation set for it. And then it gets intense. So the captain radios in and says something to the effect of, uh, uh, it's really big. It's very big. So he sounds nervous. He's kind of freaking out. You can listen to the tapes. They have them up on YouTube and shit. 
Uh, he later says it was the size of two aircraft carriers. And for reference, an aircraft carrier is it, they're huge. The largest plane to ever fly, um, besides the Spruce Goose, Spruce Goose, Spruce Goose, the H four, is the Antonov, which is wingspan is eighty four meters, and one Nimitz class carrier is four times that width. And he said he was the size of two of them. So that's like eight times the size of the biggest plane <laughs> wow. that has flown. Yeah, I think that if I looked out the window and saw that over those mountains, I would yeah. just die. It's like the dream where you ever have a dream where you're like in a car and the car is either way too small or way too big for the type of like uh, d- uh, dysmorphia <laughs> yeah. around you and your settings in your dream. I think I would just totally, happen yeah. and I would just I mean, pass think out. about, you know, it's one thing for a pilot to see something and be like, wow, that's big. But I mean, I don't even think you need to be a pilot with knowledge of different aircraft sizes to to just see something like that and know that something's not right. <laughs> you know, like, like that's abnormal. That can't even be yeah. a plane because even if I don't even know how big military planes are, you know, you're still going to be like freaked out. Totally. Yeah. Later on in the FAA report, he said that it looked like a shelled walnut shape and it was the size of two aircraft carriers and it was glowing. Uh, and there are the two other things were like flipping around it and shit. So yeah, that's, that's horrifying. Uh, so they didn't die like I would have. Uh, they didn't really freak out. They radioed air traffic control and asked to deviate from the object. Like it could change course, get away from this thing. Um, so they let them do it. They could go like 240 degree heading change and uh, it stays with them. So then the uh, air traffic control in Anchorage said, I'm just going to call them ATC from, from now. Uh, ATC has them do a full, uh, full 360 degree turn to the right. So they do a giant loop-de-loop to see if this thing follows them or not. Uh, after this, the object disappeared, and uh, JAL said they can't see it with their eyes, and they didn't have it on the radar. So this is where it gets even a little bit crazier, because they're flying over Elmendorf Air Force Base, and they're kind of their uh, radar operator, uh, air traffic control people are kind of tagged in at this point. And they actually do have the object still on the radars, uh, on radar. So they contact ATC to tell them that the object is indeed still following JAL-1628. So ATC says, A-1628 uh, military radar advises they are picking up intermittent primary target behind you in trail, in trail, I say again. So they're reaching out to JAL to be like, no, the military radar still has this thing following you. Uh, so then there's an interesting exchange between ATC and the Air Force Base where they're deciding whether or not they're going to scramble jets on account of how nervous the JAL flight is. And then they ask the JAL, um, Captain Tarachi, who you know was a fighter pilot, had 10,000 hours of flight time at this point, if he wanted the uh, jets to scramble wow. to intervene, and he said no. It's a cool, um, it's a cool head. Yeah. <laughs> People... Yeah, right. That's definitely a cool head. People say that they like ascribe reason as to why he did it. Uh, he didn't say why that I could find, but they say it's because of uh, his knowledge of a time where a uh, like a couple decades earlier, where a military plane was shot down, or maybe the 1976 Tehran incident. But uh, I, didn't, I couldn't find anything that corroborated that, so I shouldn't even have brought it up because now it's just going to be in their minds. So now that ATC, we're approaching like 45, 50 minutes here. ATC gets United 69, a flight, uh, a big plane on a similar, uh, in the airspace, to go and fly with an eyesight of JAL 1628, and they say that they don't see anything. So they're like, can you see a big object behind it? And they're like, nah. And at this point, it's, it's just gone. There's no more incidences, and JAL lands in Anchorage about an hour after everything started, and, and that's that. Uh, so that was wild enough, and that'd be crazy enough to just have all those tapes and all of that information, And but it gets a, a little bit fucking crazier um, to our favorite place, a wild bureaucratic trash fire. So two characters uh, that I love in this, both you know the no-nonsense, no stand-by-your-principle kind of people. Captain Tarachi, he gets stuck at a desk job for many, many years after this, uh, be, after talking to the press, I think it was the Kyoto newspaper, about the experience as well as oh, wow. uh, American news outlets. And then, yeah, so that sucks. But he eventually was reinstated many years later. Uh, but then John Callahan, this guy's great. John Callahan, he's this Boston-sounding guy. He's the FAA division chief of the Accidents and Investigations branch in Washington, D.C. So, like, a week after all this goes down, goes down he gets a call. Uh, and I'm just going to start to paraphrase some of his testimony from a transcript at the National Press Club UFO conference in D.C., which I believe was in uh, uh, the summer of 2001. So, in early January of 1987, I received a call from the 
Air Traffic Quality Control Branch in FAA's Alaskan Regional Office, requesting guidance on what to tell the media personnel who are overflowing their office. The media was requesting information about the UFO that chased the Japanese 747 across the Alaskan sky for some three minutes at flight levels between 30,000 feet and 35,000 feet on November 7, 1986. Uh, somehow the word had got out that this had happened and all the media were, were chasing after them. Uh, so he asked the guy, he's like, what UFO? When did this take place? Why wasn't the Washington headquarters informed? And the guy said, hey, man, who believes in UFOs? I just need to know what to tell the media to get them out of here. So he tells him, he says, all right, tell them it's under investigation, then collect all the data, the voice tapes, the data disk for both the facility and the military. Send all that shit overnight to the FAA Tech Center, which hilariously <laughs> enough is in Atlantic City, New Jersey. Uh, I don't know why the FAA Tech Center is in Atlantic City. It's that's kind of hilarious. I don't know what kind of backdoor congressional pork trade-off happened to to, to put that. There, <laughs> I don't associate official that's, buildings. That's where with, it is. Uh, anywhere in that area. No, uh, no offense to Atlantic <laughs> City, but I'm sure anybody that yeah, no, yeah. I'm sure anybody. Love, I love Atlantic City, but yeah, agree. Yeah, you you know why. So uh, after receiving the data from Alaska, almost two months later. He briefed his boss, Harvey Schaefer, and the FAA administrator, Admiral Engen. And uh, Schaefer and I went to the FAA Tech Center to observe the playback. So it gets a little technical here. I'm just going to say what he said because it just, you know, it'll make sense. The FAA had developed a program capable of recreating the traffic on the controller's scope or plain view display. Uh, I instructed the FAA specialist to synchronize the voice tapes with the radar data so we could hear everything uh, the controller and pilot said while being able to see what they saw on their scopes. Uh, I videotaped the radar display. Later that day, I requested that the FAA automation specialists plot the radar targets along the route of flight and explain what each target was doing. I videotaped that resulting chart. Uh, the printout and radar playback displayed primary targets in the vicinity of the 747. Those target returns were displayed about the same time and place as the pilot advised viewing the UFO. Both the radar and manual controller observe the primary target. So basically, they say that the, the, the radar, the manual controller part of it, the pilot's uh, conversations with the ATC and the military radar were all plotted on like a timeline. It seems like a computer would be able to do this very easily right now, and then it would just have happened yeah. within, you know, live. But apparently, he had to go and, and kind of do all this. And then it gets real crazy. So he's got this video that he makes that that, that shows all of these overlapping points of data coinciding with each other and seems to show that, yes, radar did hit at this moment of this thing when he said he saw it at this spot. Uh, so he takes the video, brings it back to the FAA headquarters, gives it to Administrator Engen in a quick briefing and shows him the video. So that guy sets up a briefing with President Reagan's scientific staff and uh, told John his function was to give them a dog and pony show and wow. hand this event off to them. So he's like, give him a <laughs> yeah, this guy's pretty funny. And I'll quote him, uh, quote, unquote, since the FAA does not deal with UFOs. That's what his administrator told him. So he says, I brought along a copy of the video and all the data printouts available at the time. One of the scientists asked a number of questions, such as what is the range of the radar? What is the frequency of the radar? What is the bandwidth? What is the formula for the height equipment, etc.? He's impressed with the response from the FAA experts that were with him that were letting these guys know. But then at the end, and this is you know anecdotal, but at the end, one of the three people from the CIA said, this event never happened. We were never here. We're confiscating all this data, and you are all sworn to secrecy. Uh, he asked him, what do you think it was? He asked the CIA guy, and the CIA guy said, a UFO, and now they have over 30 minutes of radar to go over. Well, let's get a Twix out and advise the American public that we were visited by a UFO. That's what uh, they suggested. And he said, no way. If we were to tell the American public there are UFOs, they would panic. Sometime after the briefing, the detailed FAA report, which included extensive interviews with the pilot and crew, the chart prepared at the tech center, and uh, the facility voice tapes arrived at his office and were placed in a small table waiting for the CIA to request more data. The material stayed there until he retired two years later. They never came and got it, and uh, he actually kept it ever since. So that's how we have a lot of this information. Is it was given to him to pass on to the CIA and he just or whomever was in charge of investigating this, and he just kept it. So uh, wow. that's where we're at with it that's today. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah the end gets pretty nuts you can't, it's hard you know when somebody says that some guy at the cia was like this never happened or else we're into secrecy it's like really yeah. you think that's how the government would work but i don't know man truth is is often stranger than fiction and this guy was the head of that uh department of the faa so like, yeah why, i guess you know, looking into a lot of these things up? too um these kinds of um you know sightings and things and reports like what always strikes me is that these um bureaucratic uh 
groups and the, you know they're just filled with people <laughs> like we we look at them as as these very <laughs> um i don't know i sometimes do anyway just these these foggy groups that you can't really you know uh, put human qualities to i suppose but really they're just if they have a job and they their job is to just like uh make this sound like uh silly or whatever they're just gonna be they're just gonna say a thing that a guy would say <laughs> I, I don't know i guess i'm just trying to say <laughs> they just they're just humans you know oh yeah 100 percent. i mean think about how the, the the bureaucrats always fucking work anytime you're trying to we have to do so many things like internationally with certain types of paperwork and stuff and someone's always trying to pass it off to somebody else and i understand it's not the best example but that's what we have to deal with in our life and it makes total sense earlier where he says that uh the guy who's in charge of the faa was like listen take this shit over here to the president's scientific advisory give him a dog and pony show and then pass it off because we don't we don't know what this is we don't deal with it and then you know how many times does that happen until they just drop Mm -hmm. the hot potato or pass the buck or whatever you know like that's a it seems like a lot of the things that are being hidden from us um regarding these events are along those lines there's that guy dr john b alexander wrote that book uh he's an old air force colonel i believe and his whole thing was like yeah it's incompetence more so than it is like an orchestrated um group of people hiding it intentionally there's two big uh makes sense to me you know schools of thought i guess you could say and one is that there's this uh shadow group that's hiding all this and it's you know yeah run by like a few um head people and they kind of uh, dictate what happens with all this information or all these kinds of things or even control it in some way. And then there's this other, like you said, um, with John B. Alexander, where his theory is more along the lines of, no, if you really knew how the government worked and really, really the inner workings, it would be <laughs> nearly impossible for that to even be the case. Um, you know, and, and you can take that with whatever. I mean, he was a guy that worked within different areas of the government for like years um so maybe he would know or who who knows but those are the two big things where it's either like you said incompetence and just not having an official area to actually report these things or just uh a very small group controlling all of it so it kind of totally yeah yeah, or mixture of them all who knows most likely it's a third option that we don't even know you know so who knows yeah (laughs) (laughs) totally love that but yeah that was fun man and I, uh, I'll definitely put some links to some of the shit from this. And there's a cool, couple cool documentaries about this. Uh, there's one book that I found. I couldn't find any like, uh, you know, well widespread books that I can order now about this incident. But there's there's one or two written cool. by somebody that that seemed cool. Oh, and this one actually gets even crazier. I didn't even want to dive into it because it's so much to to, to for you know that it's palatable. And that is that two more instances happened a month or two later. One involving the military mm-hmm. where they referenced this incident. So there was a some uh, interaction that happened with some fighter pilots uh, over, I believe, this Air Force base or one that was close, also in the vicinity, where they had run into it. And they, during the conversation with the air traffic controller, they referenced this event. And they're like, yeah, when you get back, we want you to talk to this uh, head of this guy. And then they just That's stopped talking about it. crazy, too. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny when you start pulling yeah. at the, the strings of this stuff, like what happens. Because, like I said, the first time I heard about this uh, story was in was in that book by, by Richard Dolan. But it was really only... Uh, page two pages of of the sort because it was just a, a section yeah. of the book where it was just a bunch of different um some of the more credible uh sightings and things that have happened and uh it was you know two pages on this thing and i was like there's got to be more to this i mean this is this sounds pretty crazy and um oh yeah yeah so it's cool it's cool d- digging into it oh, i fucking love it man i'm d- done yeah. it again anytime it, that you want to i uh and it's crazy to, to realize how many of these thing quote-unquote things there are recently i was doing an interview with somebody and he was he was cool super cool guy and he was like uh mentioned ufos and stuff i was like so do you believe in that stuff and and, uh i was like what a weighted and non you know how do you answer that like you can't what do you believe that all ufos are alien spacecraft do you believe that any are alien spacecraft? there's so much stigma and weird shit around it that parsing through it is just so fucking impossible especially with the way that people bring their passions to it but just just, long story short the main thing that you realize when you first start looking at this stuff is that the sheer number of cases involving 
um, you know, sane, sober people and instrumentation is so, there's so many thousands of them that the owners of responsibility to prove that the phenomenon doesn't exist uh, it almost seems to apply to people that would quote unquote consider themselves mm -hmm. uh, a skeptic in that regard. It's like, no, there's so much yeah, evidence yeah. that you'd have to prove otherwise. Yeah, there there it's was an interview wild. that I came across while I was, you know, researching this and it was with I don't I don't know, it was like YouTube, so it just started playing things. I don't so I I'm not gonna pretend I remember <laughs> what the exact thing was from or when it when it was from or where, but it was an interview with a woman who was talking about how uh she came out of her house and her two sons were like laying on the ground in fear because they saw this like craft and she was like there's nothing there and then she like looks up and sure enough there's this crazy huge thing and this is like such a common theme she's just the whole time she's trying to be like and i'm not crazy like i <laughs> i never thought about this stuff yeah. before i never believed it you know and, and to, to have somebody like really uh try to 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 push that point tells me two things it's one that um, it can just happen to anybody, you know, and these things can just kind of happen. And two, it's just yeah. that, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're scared because of your like reputation as just a sane human being is going to be. So as soon as that kind of stigma gets erased, um, I think it could be even, I think even more stuff will come out that people have just been, you know, hiding for, or holding on to for, for years. And thankfully, you and I have never really been. For sure. Really, never gave a shit to talk about this stuff. I don't know. I'm, yeah, I'm sure no, that people not we, even when once. we like get into it uh, <laughs> on tour. You know, we're talking backstage, and you know, you could tell people could really care less. They're just like, I don't know what what the hell are they talking about? Oh yeah. But I think that's. Or it's always hilarious to find somebody who's yeah, like yeah. fervently opposed. You know, somebody who's like uh, really into like scientific materialism, and they're just like, well. You'd be like, you could ask them the question. It's such a weird cognitive dissonance, and I'm totally doing a straw man thing where I'm like setting up this type of person and knocking them down. But they'll be like, uh, "Do you believe that the human are the only conscious beings in the 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 material universe anywhere?" And they're gonna yeah. be like, "Well, that'd be silly." No, of course not. I'm like, "Well, do you believe that they had visited here, or that uh, there may be some type of?" Um, way that we've interacted as we've evolved or the way that uh, uh you know what life is and then they're just gonna be they get angry and will be like no that's absurd yeah and it's like so, so why <laughs> there's so much evidence to suggest otherwise and i think that sometimes we rely on like uh these institutions to what bring the information to us or even things like the scientific method or the scientific community with, with its current um, economic motivations based off of, you know, the different institutions that they're beholden to. Not saying that it's inherently a bad thing. It's absurd. It's brought us so many beautiful things. But uh, just to like the idea that everything is a, be able to be explained away uh, is just, I don't know, just it's just a bizarre cognitive dissonance to me because you start to look at the actual events and you stop and you're like, oh. Mm -hmm. I mean, so much what? of, uh, without getting too deep, but so much of the media's angle is just to like mainstream media is just to gather up information and and uh, present it in a digestible way for a mass uh number of people and that's great yeah which yeah. is great i mean and which that's great. great in most cases because yeah. there is a lot of information we rely on serious and and credible journalists to like figure these things out and pack them in a nice neat thing and give it to us yeah. and we scroll through it constantly on our phones all day and i'm very thankful for that yeah and we get angry yeah. when yeah. they when we disagree with them and we think they yeah, or we get yeah. angry when they don't do good enough job yeah I mean, right. and we don't want to pay um, them <laughs> but i mean and that's and that's awesome but there's so much more than these digestible nuggets that we get fed all day through through apps or news or you know social media that like things like this that we discussed today um, it reminded me how much I love, like, actually, you know, researching these things and looking into them. And I mean, I'm no researcher. I probably mumbled halfway through most of that shit. But I just think that, um, you know, nobody else is going to is going to give you this story. So you know, it's like it's like I don't know. You can trace it back yeah. to music. Like nobody was telling it. Like we had to find the bands we wanted to listen to and you have to find the stories you want to hear sometimes too. You yeah. know? And, and they're not always going to be the ones that are, that are pushed out to you. Damn. That's a really good point. Hell yeah. Nice. I think we wrap it up with that. <laughs>
Hell yeah, man. Well, thank you so very much for coming on. I can't wait to watch those videos of the uh, Zimbabwe kids, especially any yeah. follow-ups. That's got to be crazy, dude. Because, I mean, they had to be our age. If it was 1994, we would have Yeah, been, yeah, and those schools, eight, I think know? I mentioned they ranged or from seven or six eight. to 12 at the time it happened. So, yeah, they're all right around right around our age. Yeah, it's, it's really Damn, cool. So they're all yeah, we'll, we'll right throw now. some links That's up. crazy. This is fun. Nice. Oh, I also got to give a shout out to a YouTube channel that was uh, super helpful when I was researching the JAL event. It is called The Flight. Oh, shit. Nice. The Flight Channel. Got it. Sorry, I wrote it down. I want to make sure I get it. It's all one word, switched together. The Flight Channel. Somebody takes famous and uh, infamous. Fl- you probably wouldn't want to watch this if you. Uh, it's a lot of them <laughs> if you're not a big fan of flying. But they, they use like super hyper realistic flight simulator software and then they plug in the data points from whatever they're going over and then they visualize the event. So I saw one that was this particular one, the, the JAL Flight 1628 um, was really cool. Oh. It was from the inside of the flight simulator and you're able to, they added the objects into where it was and it made it a palatable timeline without all the like flashy dramatiza- dramatizations that you'd find on some of the old UFO yeah, shows yeah. and the, the current UFO shows. And they had all kinds of ones. They had ones where like, I watched one this morning of a guy who the pilot Whoa. like had a heart attack and then one of the passengers who had some like a little bit of flight training had to land the plane so they they have the actual audio from the air traffic control like going back and <laughs> forth to him and they're showing what the plane was doing and when it was doing it it was cool i highly oh and they did also that mh370 uh, remember that plane that disappeared the yeah, malaysian yeah. airlines i think it was mh370 what happened like right before yeah. we got or while we were in australia and it got <laughs> yeah, crashed like west now. of australia it was super weird but they go over that entire story and they plot all the point plot points out or data points out on that. It's super fascinating. I'm rambling about the, the flight channel, but it was really cool. And I'm yeah, right know, now, especially uh, for anybody that doesn't know, I'm, we probably touched on this. I think on an episode that I was on earlier, but yeah, I don't like <laughs> flying necessarily, and uh, I've been a lot better with it. But right now is like a perfect time for me to get in that stuff because I'm not flying anywhere anytime soon. So I'm like, yeah, sure, show me all those fucking <laughs> people crashing up. I don't care, whatever. <laughs> like I'm not flying anywhere anytime soon. Oh yeah. Dude. but but yeah a back it i actually learned the the biggest air uh the biggest aviation disaster ever really? actually happened on the runway uh, on the canary islands yeah it's weird two planes two pilots are like big dick at each other basically uh you know no offense to their dead relatives i don't think any of them are or their live relatives i doubt any of them are listening to this but like they were just like kind of being macho one of the pilots fucking took off while one of them wasn't off oh the off the ramp yet wow. and just smashed into it yeah Killed like 600 That's people. That's terrifying. Um, I think the biggest airline disaster yeah. was the plane that crashed <laughs> on the island on the way to Australia. And then they all experienced uh, oh, their own version of uh, heaven or hell while on the island. Do you remember that one? Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, J.J. Yeah, Abrams directed it, Well, he was on it, the think, actual whatever. flight that that happened. So it was a true story. <laughs> he, he came back and wrote that. Oh, it was a true story. That was where the... Uh, all I remember about that show was that yeah, we did. you and Greg liked it a lot, Yeah, and I didn't like it, but the guy from Lord of the Rings was on it, and he uh, was yeah, uh, one of the hobbits. Wait, <laughs> I forget the name of his band. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he Mary. was one of the best. Charlie, I think. Yeah, he's Charlie. Yeah, Charlie, and he oh, found man. the heroine and the so many cat. Memories. So many memories of walking in and be like, hey, can you guys explain what what's going Can't on? Do. And everyone deep. being like, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's too deep Where do and I they start? just were winging it the whole fucking time nice yeah Swanson Sawyer maybe one of the guys named Swanson? Swanson I don't know it wasn't Sawyer, Sawyer. complicated yeah, character complicated but uh, hell yeah yeah I love it. but Joe thank you so much for I coming on we gotta do this anytime. again anytime you want to uh, yeah I'm gonna try to start putting an episode out every week uh, to stay like you know fun and accountable and Sounds we can do great. anything it'll be fun See ya. But yeah, bye-bye. All right. Thanks so much for joining me for the first ever episode of Friday Files. I'm really excited to keep this thing rolling. Shoot me an email, tom at futurefriday.net, about literally anything. Also, go to Instagram and check out Little Fern Workshop. Uh, again, that is Eric and George's new company, uh, vintage, restored, and handcrafted items out of South Philly. You can search hashtag ferns in stock for available items or if you're having uh, uh, trouble finding them. They got some really cool shit. I uh, can't recommend it enough. Eric to, and George do such a great fucking job, not only finding and curating the stuff, but also restoring it. It looks amazing. And that's all for this week. See you next week.
This is the story of Whitney Houston. This is the story of Kurt Cobain. Of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died, why they died, and why we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. It's storytelling. But it's more than that, because rock stars... They tell us how we feel. They change our mood. They change the clothes we wear, the people we hang out with. The way we remember things. It's them who give us those ludicrous moments, the ones where you're... Jumping around, singing your heart out, feeling understood. And it's those moments we'll help you remember, the ones you're thinking about right now. That feeling. That feeling. It's coming soon from Crowd Network. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. And subscribe now. Hi, this is Chad Nicefield. And this is Justin Press. We're the host of Making Waves, the Shiprock Podcast, a part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. We're inviting you to sail away with us on an epic journey in musical enlightenment. Every week, we bring you only the best artists in rock music and discuss everything from the cruise to the stage to the saga of being a professional recording artist. We'll have lots of special guests along the way, so tune in every week. Your stateroom is available every Monday morning, so welcome aboard.